Bienvenue and welcome to The Musical Man, the podcast that shines new light on the Tony Award for Best Musical. Each week we examine the nominees and winners of that esteemed decoration, and this week we'll be discussing rags. doing i hope this episode finds you well i just have to say yay (laughs) i just have to say yay we can celebrate a joe biden victory were we especially excited to vote for joe biden no not necessarily but a victory over donald trump is something to celebrate it's more than something it's an extraordinary thing to celebrate nbc news actually called the election maybe an hour after our recording session for the lieutenant. Okay, so great. I was happy. Yes. Am I still filled with an extreme amount of anxiety regarding the Trump administration and how it is dragging its feet on the way out? How they may or may not stick to their decision to stick around? (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I am filled with an extreme amount of anxiety when it comes to that subject. If you are like me, just know that we are in the same headspace. Hello, I'm waving to you. Are you waving back at me? Hello, we have something in common. Ay, 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 this country this year, am I right? We received a correction and a clarification from Anton. Who's Anton? Well, Anton is our newest $10 a month patron. Hello, Anton. Now, I mistakenly cited the end of the Vietnam War as April 30th, 1965 in our lieutenant episode when it was actually April 30th, 1975. Yes. Also, the theme for the 29th annual Tony Awards was not a general Broadway retrospective as I implied, but rather a celebration of the Winter Garden Theater and its place in Broadway history. Fair enough. But when you reserve stage time for the best musical nominees during the 28th and 30th annual Tony Awards, the decision to exclude every best musical nominee from the 29th ceremony still comes off as insensitive. Your theme should not take precedence over your nominees. That's all I have to say about that. And now we are going to get the show facts as they relate to this week's subject, Rags. Show me the show facts. Okay. Rags was a 1987 nominee for the Tony Award for Best Musical. It opened on August 21st, 1986 at the Mark Hellinger Theater and ran for four performances. The book was written by Joseph Stein, who you might know as the author of the book for Fiddler on the Roof. The music was by Charles Strauss, who wrote the music for Annie, Bye Bye Birdie, and Applause. And the lyrics were written by Stephen Schwartz, who we know as the composer behind Pippin, Godspell, Working, 
Annoying and Wicked. The director of the original Broadway production of Rags, Gene Sachs. Musical director, Eric Stern. Choreography, well, we have a musical staging by credit, and that credit goes to Ron Field. Scenic design, Benny Montressor. Lighting design, Jules Fisher. Sound design, Peter Fitzgerald. Costume design, Florence Klotz. And the original Broadway cast included Teresa Stratus, this was her Broadway debut, Larry Kurt, John Aller, Evelyn Barron, Gabriel Barr, Josh Blake, Marshall Coyd, Michael Cohn, Michael Davis, Rex Everhart, Joan Finkelstein, Andy Gale, Joanna Glushak, Bill Hastings, Wendy Kimball, Judy Kuhn, Dick Latessa, Audrey Levine, Mordecai Lawner, Marsha Lewis, Terrence Mann, Terrence Mann, hello again, Terrence, <laughs> Devin Michaels, Lonnie Price, Robert Radford, not to be confused with Robert Redford, I got... <laughs> I got so confused when I looked at that name. We also have Irma Rogers, Stan Rubin, Peter Samuel, Bonnie Schoen, Scone, I apologize, Bonnie and Catherine Ulysses. I think that actually might be the complete cast breakdown. I don't think we left anyone out there. Now, Tony Nods. The show was nominated for Best Musical, of course, but it was also nominated for Best Book of a Musical, Joseph Stein, Best Original Score, Stephen Schwartz and Charles Strauss, Best Actress in a Musical, Teresa Stratus, and Best Choreography, Ron Field. So, five nominations, zero awards at the end of the day, but that's okay. You're in good company with other shows. I mean, the lieutenant didn't win any Tony Awards, as we established last week. But, you know, sometimes, sometimes the awards don't really mean much in the grand scheme of things. Sometimes they don't have much to say in regards to the true quality of a show. Who determines the true quality of a show? I'm pointing at him right now. It's me, the musical man. Let's talk about the plot. As noted by Wikipedia, the plot and score of Rags have been revised several times in the wake of its short Broadway run. The show was revamped for New York City's American Jewish Theater in 1991, LA's Colony Theater Company in 1993, Florida's Coconut Grove Playhouse, and New Jersey's Paper Mill Playhouse in 1999, a 2006 World AIDS Day concert staging held at the Nokia Theater in Times Square, Connecticut's Goodspeed Opera House in 2017, and Manchester, England's Hope Mill Theatre in 2019. This most recent production transferred to London's Park Theatre in January 2020 and ran through February. Wikipedia makes it clear their plot synopsis represents the quote-unquote rewritten production of the show, and while they do not specify which production they use as a point of reference, they do make a point of saying it is not the Goodspeed Opera House revival. Uh, fair enough, Wikipedia. Make it as confusing as possible for all involved. Thank you. When it comes to my point of reference, I will be using the summary provided by GuideToMusicalTheater.com as it seems to reflect what audiences would have seen on Broadway back in 1986. Here's hoping, fingers crossed. Knock on wood. Our story begins in 1910 as Jewish immigrants arrive at Ellis Island. The journey from Eastern Europe has been a difficult one, and though America seems wild and strange, it holds an enormous amount of promise for our main characters. Rebecca Hershkowitz and her son, David, are determined to find Nathan, the husband and father who moved to America years ago and never sent for them. Rebecca and David's options are severely limited, their former village having been destroyed in a pogrom, and when Ellis Island Island officials threaten to deport them back to Europe, fate intervenes in the form of Avram Cohen. Avram and his teenage daughter, Bella, have come to America to find better, more prosperous lives, and by claiming Rebecca and David as his relatives, Avram manages to save the lives of his fellow immigrants. The final character in our tale is Ben Levitowitz, a young man who fell in love with Bella during the trip to America. Avram does not approve of the romance, but this only encourages Ben to find his fortune in their new home country. Rebecca and David find shelter with additional help from Avram, and quickly come to realize how difficult it will be to find Nathan in the crowded streets of New York City. In the meantime, Rebecca and the rest of our protagonists must find jobs. Avram and David team up to sell used goods from a pushcart. Ben secures a position at a cigar factory, Bella works from home as a seamstress, and Rebecca finds employment at a sweatshop. It is here Rebecca meets Saul, a labor organizer who encourages 
encourages her to unionize with the other sweatshop workers. Rebecca rejects his ideas at first, as she does not want to cause any trouble. However, as they spend more time with each other, she finds herself admiring and even falling in love with Saul. Meanwhile, Bella finds herself becoming depressed and restless while toiling away at home. Ben manages to comfort her with the gift of a gramophone, but when her resentments return, Bella lashes out at Avram. Don't you get it, Daddy? I want wealth and splendor, not ceaseless drudgery. Rebecca severs her ties with Saul upon discovering his ideas have inspired David to fight in the street with hooligans. Hooligans! The violence reminds her all too well of the pogroms. They worked so hard to escape. I I think I've thrown out two pronunciations of that word at this point, and I I do apologize. I think I'm all over the map when it comes to that. The violence reminds her all too well of the pogroms. They worked so hard to escape, and she can't have a radical like Saul threatening their safety. The timing couldn't be better on Rebecca's part, because who's that at the door? Knock, knock, knock. Why, it's her husband, Nathan. Actually, it's Nat Harris now. Nathan changed his name to Nat for the sake of becoming a politician. He is, without a doubt, the ideological opposite of Saul in every way. He is not interested in fighting for a cause because he is too obsessed with assimilation. And if being accepted means doing the dirty work of corrupt Democrats, oh, those Democrats, by God, he'll do it with a smile. Fun fact, Nathan despises immigrants and is all too willing to share his views with Rebecca. Fun! In other news, Ben and David find success in the gramophone business, Avram grows close with a widow named Rachel, and Bella finds new employment at a sweatshop. It's certainly a change of pace from doing piecework at home, but... When a fire breaks out, Bella finds herself trapped in the shop and ultimately dies. Rebecca is stunned in the face of this tragedy. She leads a strike against those in power who would ignore Bella's death, and when Nathan threatens to leave her, she refuses to back down. Life in America must change. As Rebecca, David, Avram, and Ben grieve together and fight beside each other for a brighter day, another ship of immigrants docks at Ellis Island. For the purposes of this week's episode, I sat down and I listened to the 1987 original Broadway cast album, the album which was recorded in 1987 but wasn't released until 1991, features a number of original cast members, though Teresa Stratus has notably been replaced in the role of Rebecca by Julia Minez. Minez, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that right either. I'm all over the place this week. I apologize. I also watched the 1987 Tony Awards performance of the show's title song, Rags. Now, Dick Latessa is perfectly fine in the role of Avram, but it's clear his purpose is to provide support for Judy Kuhn's portrayal of Bella. Kuhn trembles and glows like a firecracker fit to burst, and I was transfixed by the character's degenerating ability to repress her rage. I want to go back in time and catch Rags on Broadway based on Kuhn alone. Can you imagine sitting in that Tony Awards audience knowing you missed the show before it closed? Oh, the people who saw it must have been so annoying. Oh, of course we saw Rags. Front row, third performance. I was there, closing night. Five minutes, standing ovation. Okay, shut up, Ralph. Shut up, Janine. I also listened to the 2020 original London cast album of Rags. I will be comparing the structure and content of Rags 1986 and Rags 2020 several times throughout our score deconstruction, but here are a few rapid-fire observations as a treat. Of course, when I say rapid-fire, I think we understand that's a relative term on this podcast. One of the problems I have with the score of Rags 1986 lies in its structure. The first act is front-loaded to a preposterous degree with colossal group anthems and character solos that should have been earmarked as 11 o'clock numbers. By comparison, Act 2 feels like a hastily assembled outline. We barrel toward emotional payoffs that are largely unearned via songs that are thinly drawn or seemingly unfinished. It would be like if you blew your budget on complex animation sequences and had to resort to storyboard panels in the final reel. 
What feels especially inauthentic about the latter half of Rags 1986 is the effect Bella's death has on Rebecca. I could be persuaded to buy Rebecca's grief as well as her desire to fight the system in Bella's name, but only if these women had shared a single musical moment on stage. Such a moment does not exist in the original score. Characters in musicals are bound to each other by the music, and if Rebecca and Bella don't sing together, they might as well exist on different planets. The issue of Bella and Rebecca's half-baked relationship is completely resolved by the time we get to Rags 2020. When the curtain goes up on that iteration, Rebecca and Bella are the first characters we meet. When they deliver the newly written If We Never Meet Again, they are singing about a friendship they've come to treasure on their way to America. We are so lucky to have found each other. We are best friends. We are sisters. The love we feel in this moment will carry us through the entire musical. And it's true. It does. Rebecca and Bella consistently check in with each other throughout the show, and you can't help but become invested in their struggles and victories. They work side by side as seamstresses, comfort each other in the face of anti-immigrant protests, and even vow to open up their own business. It's a remarkably refreshing dynamic that passes the Bechtel test with flying colors, and when Bella dies, it strikes you like a blow to the head. My stomach dropped. I finally felt the impact of Rebecca's loss. If a character's death is to have any real effect on the audience, they must first be allowed to live. They cannot live within the narrative for the express purpose of dying. They should not exist simply because their absence will teach someone a lesson or activate them in some profound way. That's some women-in-the-fridge comic book bullshit, and I'm glad the team behind Rags evolved beyond such nonsense. Are you kidding me with this five-minute smorgasbord of an overture? This overture is lavish, splashy, tropical fruit punch fun. It is way too long, and I am here to chew on every flavorful second. Better feast than famine when it comes to the overture, am I right? If Charles Strauss wants to go long, who am I to question him? You're always in good hands with Captain Strauss at the helm, and this piece tells us everything we need to know about the musical barreling toward us. Rags is going to be big and loud, a shaggy, sloppy kitchen sink experiment in excess. Deal with it. Another load of greenhorns fresh off the boat. Another load of human dirt to sew the cup on every shirt and help the rise of free enterprise. They call them wretched refuse. Take a good whip and you'll discover what they mean. Greenhorns, heat and wolf, but long as greenhorns work the shops. Pick the crops, eat the slops.
lovely line from Greenhorns, that being Greenhorns, is destined to bore a hole through my poor brain. It's already happening, and frankly, I'm proud of myself for being able to discuss this score at all, because that two-note phrase is doing everything it can to turn me into a blathering, dead-eyed parrot. Mr. Pernasek, we need your emergency contacts. Greenhorns! No, 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 Mr. Pernasek, this is serious. You don't have much time. Greenhorns! Get him out of here! The Ellis Island officials who chirp this little ditty may be racist opportunists who leech immigrants dry, but you better believe they sound like barbershop butter. And if I may be so bold, I would venture to say the Greenhorns number was a flashpoint of inspiration for Aaron's and Flaherty's ragtime. Yes, that's right. Don't think I haven't kept my eye on you, Aaron's and Flaherty. Well, you see, their show was called Rags, and our show is called Ragtime. It's a totally different beast, you understand. Uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that when it comes to rags, Mr. Strauss is handling the music while Mr. Schwartz oversees the lyrics. But if Mr. Schwartz is on your payroll, the final product is inevitably going to sound like a Stephen Schwartz musical. His composer fingerprints are all over this sucker, and the ensemble bustle of Brand New World brought to mind his later contributions to the world of animation, Pocahontas, The Hunchback of Notre Dame, and The Prince of Egypt. But Stephen Schwartz only wrote music for two of those films. Alan Menken wrote the music for Pocahontas and Hunchback. Oh, I am aware of this, but my ears hear what they hear, all right? My dear, I can't control how my ears work, my dear. The Wind is an 11 o'clock number if ever there was one. As a reminder, 11 o'clock numbers arrive near the end of the evening with just enough time on the clock to punch your lights out. If you were ever in doubt as to where a character stands or what the musical has to say regarding its themes, the 11 o'clock number will do everything it can to sum up where we've been and where we're going. Think Rose's turn from Gypsy or Lot's wife from Carolina Change. The women who sing these songs have come to some conclusions and they are 
prepared to bring the house down with their final statements. Children of the Wind is an 11 o'clock number. It's a big fat period on a totemic thesis statement about the immigrant experience, delivered by Rebecca in a moment of astonishing clarity. In the hands of Julia Minez, it's a true blue, old-fashioned showstopper. Do I wish Teresa Stratus was on the original album? Of course, she originated the role of Rebecca, but Minez was in the original cast of Fiddler on the Roof and the 1964 Broadway revival of West Side Story. I was more than ready to see where she would take me, and that decision paid off like gangbusters, paid off like Ghostbusters, da-na-na-na-na-na. But why am I making such a big deal about Children of the Wind and its status as an 11 o'clock number? Well, here's why. When Rags premiered on Broadway in 1986, Children of the Wind appeared in the first half of Act One. I am not prepared to take on the emotional weight of that song if I'm only in Act One. When did I sit down? 20 minutes ago? This is lunacy. Thankfully, Strauss and Schwartz eventually came to their senses, and the song now sits at the tail end of Act Two, where it belongs. You've come a long way, Children of the Wind. operating in the same hemisphere. These are street-level songs fueled by feverish energy, but if I had to pick one over the other, I would go with Penny a Tune in a Heartbeat. Any song that can favorably compare to Portobello Road from Bedknobs and Broomsticks and Who Will Buy from Oliver is a song worth remembering, all right? Imagine my disappointment when I found that not only had Penny a Tune been reduced for the sake of the London album, it had been reduced from nearly five minutes in length to a mere 49 seconds. Did Strauss and Schwartz finally realize how similar Penny was to Brand New World? Did that conclusion lead to this decision? If so, I understand the logic, but it hurts my heart nonetheless. I would rather cut Penny completely than have it skulking about as a vestigial scrap of its former self. Remember me? Ah, tell me. Yeah, I sort of remember Remember you, <laughs> scary. with love, but Blame It on the Summer Night is pure B-side Linda Etter solo album fodder. If you told me this was a discarded character solo for Lucy in Frank Wildhorn's Jekyll and Hyde, I would believe you without hesitation, but the song simply doesn't fit in with the larger Rags score. Or should I say it didn't fit in until Strauss and Schwartz came around to patch up the show. The 2020 London album presents Summer Night not as a slinky soliloquy for Rebecca, but as a burning duet for Rebecca and Saul. My reason's gone. Can we blame it on the summer night? Maybe the sun. 
alteration doesn't suddenly transform the song into a classic by any means, but I would rather listen to people examine their feelings for one another than hear someone wind their own clock, so to speak. I have listened to A Doll's Life. I have heard No More Mornings. Thank you very much. Does Jonathan have a problem with women expressing their sensuality in musicals? No, not if that expression comes in the form of a decent song. conceived the show's titular song I've never seen Ladybird and it has been in my Netflix queue for weeks if not months is an embittered rant spun by Bella and directed toward her father I understand why Bella is angry Avram keeps insisting that America will reward their hard work but the evidence indicates otherwise and Bella is sick of his rhetoric the idea of dying old and poor having never moved beyond their lower class station, it's repellent to her. Totally believable. But hearing Bella rail against her father for minutes on end is a one-note experience. Not vocally, you understand. Judy Kuhn is a powerhouse, and she is doing everything she can to find the shading in Bella's fury. But thematically, yeah, it, this isn't what you would call enriching. We establish a tone, we sit on it, and we never move beyond it. Rags 2020 reworks the number considerably, and the results are fantastic. In this context, the song is a duet for Bella and Rebecca, one in which they wrestle with America's hatred for immigrants and resolve to rise above it. What's more, they reaffirm their love for one another, which proves to be just the note we need to bring Act 1 to a close. See that gent in his fancy clothes, how he sneers at us down his perfect nose with his hair so clean and his skin so clear as he wonders what are they doing here and he turns his back and the rest do too and I want to scream I'm the same as you but it isn't true I'm just one more Jew in her I swear to you, I am going to get us someplace better to live. Whatever I have to do, I'll get us there. David and me, and you too. We didn't come to America to be hurt again. We didn't come to America to be dirt again. On the edge of a knife, if that's where we remain.
fine with characters wallowing in a muddy puddle of misery, but you can't leave them in that position as we head into intermission. Give them and us a reason to come back swinging. Does the first act of Gypsy end with Mama Rose complaining? No, it does not. In our war, there's an invasion of folks of your persuasion. That's a lot of votes, a million plus. And the party needs a man from your Semitic clan who can deliver them to us. Tammany would sure be grateful when we are, we keep your playful nap. What's wrong with that? What's wrong with that? Sign us up a new supporter from each room of each cold water flat. We can't stand pat. What's wrong with that? Do your bit, I can Avis favor it. In the golden land, it's tit for tat. Foreign types ain't no dilemma if you get them voting Democrat. What's wrong with that? Nothing's wrong with that. I'll show them a smile so shiny, slap each back and kiss each whiny brat. You nibble that. What's wrong with that? And when those Union Reds get scary, stirring up the proletariat, we knock them flat. What's wrong with that? After listening to the 2020 London album, I can safely say I did not miss Nathan and his Democrat cronies one iota. What's wrong with that doesn't make a case for their existence within the narrative, and I'm not convinced it has much of an interest in doing so. It's as if Strauss and Schwartz were forced to write a song for these guys and chose to dash it off over the course of an afternoon. The smugness and irony on display in this song does not gel with the show's earnest nature, and what are we to make of these painfully bad lyrical setups and payoffs? Quote, In our ward, there's an invasion of folks like your persuasion. That's a lot of votes, a million plus. And the party needs a man of your Semitic clan who can deliver them to us. Here's another example. Quote, And when those Union Reds get scary, stirring up the proletariat, we knock them flat. What's wrong with that? They say it in that halting way. I'm not kidding. When I, That was not an exaggerated delivery. They say proletariat. It's just so strained and sweaty. Is this supposed to be fun for me? Listening to Stephen Schwartz tie his own lyrics into knots while giving me a wink? Hey, ho, ho, talk about a corny rhyme, am I right? These characters are corny. Don't worry, I'm a professional. Just having a bit of fun with you. Yeah, uh, Stephen, I'm good. Small cafe on Cherry Street, but you'll meet all kinds of people. It's where actors and aldermen and anarchists come exchange jokes and fists. Honey, come on in, the fun's about to begin. Down here at the bottom of Manhattan Isle, there's a place to go when you go out in style. Everybody knows, everybody goes walking to the Cherry Street Cafe. See the famous poet there against the wall, flirting with the lady in the Spanish shawl. Councilmen and cook students with their books, meet them at the Cherry Street Cafe. cow, what is going on with the Cherry Street Cafe number? I mean, there's a great deal of chutzpah. I suppose I can give it that much. We are building worlds within worlds here, uh, populating this buzzing hive of a cafe with a positively motley crew. Poets, lovers, criminals. Wouldn't it be wonderful to sit down with each and every one of them? You never know what could happen at the Cherry Street Cafe, the very important location we are going out of our way to establish 
Yeah, here's the thing. The track is one minute long, and it doesn't have a proper ending. It simply fades out. That wasn't our fade. It was their fade. Oh, boy, what happened? Is there more to this sequence that was cut for the sake of saving space on the album? Unsurprisingly, Cherry Street Cafe does not appear on the London album. Shocking. sort of wild horn adjacent material I can get behind. Wanting would align perfectly with the style and spirit of the Scarlet Pimpernel. Can't you imagine Percy and Marguerite beating their breasts in separate bedrooms, stamping their dainty feet, and tearing off their dusty wigs in utter dismay? Urgh! Rebecca and Saul, sure, whatever. They're one of a thousand star-crossed musical theater couples. But are they two jewels in the sky sharing fire? No. No, they're not. I think not. Three sunny rooms facing the street. Only last year they were painted. One room to sit, one room to eat. One to get better acquainted. Who would believe heaven like this? For 14 a month could be Two could be in their three sunny rooms. Let the others hear cast away the old ways we love. Let them all throw the past away. We will keep it safe within the twelve walls of three sunny rooms. What could compete? My late husband, forgive me. Life will be full, life will be sweet, life will be finely like living. Goodbye to night, scared and alone. Goodbye to crowds that could smother. 
Goodbye, thank God, to my brother. Hello to keeping each other company in our three Fiddler on the Roof, Tevya and Golda attempt to define their relationship via the song, Do You Love Me? They've spent their entire married lives adhering to some vague yet immutable sense of duty, and for the first time they wonder, was it worth it? Do you love me? Not an easy question, nor is the one posed by Rachel in Three Sunny Rooms. Look, Avram, you were married, I was married. Your wife is dead, my husband is dead. And we honor them in our hearts every day of the blessed week. But hey, we care for each other, do we not? Of course we do. But are we brave enough to do something about it? I like Rachel a lot. She doesn't get a lot of time in the spotlight, but there's no fuss or muss in her logic, and that left quite an impression. Three Sunny Rooms is even better on the 2020 London album because it brings Ben and Bella into the fold, which is a lovely choice. Watching romance bloom between young people who are just getting started and old people who have only just begun what could be better. It is heartbreaking to know Bella's days are numbered when she sings from this state of uncompromised happiness, but what can you do? Sunrise, sunset. We do the best with the time that we are given. P.S. Fiddler on the Roof takes place in 1905, five years before the events of Rags. Are Tevya and his family already in America when Rebecca and David arrive at Ellis Island? I like to imagine that even if these people don't meet, they at least pass each other on the street from time to time. Perhaps Golda gives Rebecca a friendly smile? Eh, come to think of it, Golda doesn't strike me as the sort of neighbor who would smile smile so casually. Tevya, he would smile. He's more outgoing than Golda. No offense, Golda. Sisters, we stand joining hand in hand all for bread and freedom one union we stand It's important for us to hear a bit of bread and freedom, even if I don't have much to say about it. Strauss, Schwartz, and Stein must have been kicking themselves bloody when Les Miserables appeared on the scene with its own band of fiery demonstrators. They have fiery demonstrators, but... But we have fiery demonstrators. Oh, maybe there's enough room on Broadway for two sets of fiery demonstrators. No, <laughs> no, I'm sorry to say. Nope, nope, sorry. Before we bring our deconstruction of the score to an end, I would like to feature a few additional clips from the 2020 London album. Let's start with a nice slice of If We Never Meet Again. This is the song I talked about earlier. It's a duet between Rebecca and Bella, and it opens the show. It's the first song we hear in Act One. Let's hear that now.
but not quite complete if we never meet again. There she is! The Statue of Liberty. Wonderful, wonderful. Now I want to hear a nice little chunk of hunk of Edge of a Knife. This is an Act One solo for Rebecca that I quite enjoyed. Let's get that now. Sometimes it feels like the world would cheer if we pined away. It may seem hopeless to persevere, still we'll find our way. What woes the day will bequeath us will face as we have before. Though the ground shifting beneath us will always take one step more. And if tomorrow we must climb the rockiest hill, well then climb it we will in this life on the edge of a knife on the edge of a knife in the eye of a storm on the brink of a precipice David I promise this we And finally, I would like to hear, ooh, what's another word for slice, chunk, hunk, a bit, a little bit of Take Our City Back. This is sung by a group of anti-immigrant protesters, and it is wildly on the nose. You would have to be a complete fool who has been living in a cave your entire life to not understand what they are going for here, what they are trying to comment on with this song. But I just wanted to throw it into the mix. Why not? Let's get that and now. Take our city back. Citizens awake. To the threat before us, take our city back. Our heritage at stake, when our borders pour us, take our city back. Now, normally at this point in the show, we would hear from our fine sponsor, 5678, but as I said at the top of the show in our opening segment, we have a brand new $10 a month patron, Anton. Hello, Anton. And because Anton is donating $10 a month, that means they deserve a musical shout-out, a special musical shout-out. And so, Anton, you are going to hear that now. Let's hear it. It's me, George Abbott. Uh, <laughs> how are you doing? Uh, I'm feeling uh, very avuncular today because uh, I've been told that we are recording, uh, is this right, a musical shout-out for Anton. Hello, Anton. It's me, George Abbott, actor, writer, director, and producer. Uh, of course, you probably know this already, but for those who don't, for the fools out there, my Broadway credits include Jumbo, the boys from Syracuse, pal Joey Sweet charity on the town wonderful town two town shows the pajama game damn yankees the skin of our teeth new girl in town once upon a mattress i'm not done fiorello tenderloin and a funny thing happened on the way to the forum it's true anton look i'm gonna let you in on some some hot gossip regarding the pajama game now everyone knows that i was a world famous script doctor when i was in my 
heyday when I was alive. I'm dead now. But when I was alive, I was a script doctor. I would come in and fix up the books for musicals and plays. Oh, I did it all the time. I was a genius. And I just got to tell you right now, I'm going to sing a couple of, a couple of lines from some pajama game songs. And as I do, I'm going to sprinkle in some hot gossip regarding my script doctor work on the pajama game. Okay, so here, here's a little song from the pajama game you might know. I'm not at all in love, not at all in love, not I, not a bet, Anton, not a mite. Okay, so that's all I remember from that song. Here's the thing, I first met Jerry Ross and Richard Adler at a bar. We were supposed to discuss the current state of the pajama game, and they were drunk. Oh, they were completely smashed. And they kept saying, George, come on, drink with us. And I said, guys, it's Monday night. My God, it's not even really nighttime. It's 5 p.m. And they said, <laughs> come on, George, have a drink. So I got obliterated with them. I'm, I'm, you know what? I'm dead. I'm going to just put it all on the table. I got obliterated with these guys. Hey there, that's better. You with the stars in your eyes. Let's put Anton's name in there. Anton, you with the stars in your eyes. These guys were out of their minds. The script for the pajama game, the book, as I should say, it was a mess. They kept insisting, come on, George, when you work on it, you gotta help us out. The producers want us to take out all of our favorite bits. And I said, what are your favorite bits? Here, I'll make a list on a cocktail napkin. What are the parts you want me to keep? They said to me, George, we gotta keep the dinosaurs. I said, the dinosaurs? My God, what are you talking about? This is a pajama union factory show. What are you talking about, dinosaurs? They said, the dinosaurs are the big reveal. Also, you gotta keep the bikini vampire babes. I said, bikini vampire babes? How do they factor into the plot? They said, it's a twist. The dinosaurs, the bikini vampire babes. It's all a third act twist. And I said, third act? They said, don't forget about the little green men. And I said, what are, what are you talking about, little green men? They told me to shove them more coal in the boiler. Hurt my throat. They told me to shove them more coal in the boiler. It's really hurt my throat. They told me to shove them more coal in the boiler. This hurts. But that don't do no good. I, I had sex with them that night. It was insane. We, well, I told you, I got, I got gobsmacked, obliterated. And they said, come back to um, a hotel room. We're sharing a, we're sharing a hotel room, George. And I said, oh, I could get behind that. I like this. I like this idea. And I liked the outcome of the idea, if you know what I mean. In and out. Anton, thank you for donating. I hope you enjoyed this hot gossip regarding the pajama game. My throat is collapsing in on itself. I gotta go. Wrap it up. Turn this microphone off. I'm George Abbott. My ears are enormous. Final thoughts regarding rags. I have to hand it to Strauss, Schwartz, Stein, and all of the artists who collaborated on rags in all of its many forms. They put in the work. They took what could have been a quickly discarded flop, easily obscured by the likes of Les Mis and Ragtime, and turned it into something that not only honors their ambition, but is undeniably airtight in its structure. Rags 1986 was an earnest, messy start, overflowing with potential and Rags 2020 lives up to that potential. Now, as a reminder, in 1987, the winner of the Tony Award for Best Musical was Les Miserables, and the additional nominees that season were Me and My Girl and Starlight Express. I can say definitively that Les Miserables deserves to keep its Tony Award medallion. We are not going to be going back in time and changing history, giving that medallion to any of the other shows that were nominated that season. But we have covered every show in this season, okay? We're closing out this show, which means we have to give a little bit of airtime to our good friend Shrek. Take it away, Shrek. Ooh, I, it's me, 
Shrek. <laughs> I'm here to talk about the shows that were nominated in 1987. I'm going to pick one up and I'm going to put it in my belly. That's right. Shrek is hungry, baby. <laughs> he's got a craving. And Donkey, he's been eating me out for the last 14 hours straight. His jaw has gone into gridlock, baby. All right, so let's go over these shows. The winner, of course, as you said, Jonathan, was Les Miserables. That show is not going into my belly. No way. I'm not in the mood for French food. Oui, oui. More like, no. No way. Oh, oh. <laughs> Me and my girl. No way. You know why? It's because those people are too nice. They're too goddamn nice, I do say. Oh, they're swinging around lampposts talking about how they love each other. How, you know, they're dealing with uh, class warfare. I, you know, I'm Shrek, baby. I'm a sexual freak in the bedroom. I've got all kinds of kinks and fucked up viewpoints and perspectives. But, you know, I admire these people. These normies. It's a show for normies. And you know what? I'm not interested in chomping on normies. Rags, no, I'm not going to be chomping on rags either. No, 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 no. Shrek is not going to get in trouble. Shrek is not going to get cancelled because he was chomping on uh, immigrants from Eastern Europe in the early 1900s. No way. I already have a rap sheet a mile long. Ask Donkey. <laughs> okay, but Starlight Express, now that's a show that can get in my belly. I want to tie all those shitty little trains together. I want it to be one long spaghetti noodle of trains. And I'm going to slurp them up is what I'm going to do. That's right. Shrek is going to put Starlight Express in his belly. Hey, look, it's been nice hanging out with you, Jonathan. But I've got to go. I've got to go massage donkey's tight jaw. Oh, it's so tight. And then I'm gonna, I'm gonna twist his little donkey tail. I'm going to wind him up like a little clock. And when I let him go, oh, his alarm's gonna go off, baby. Call me the next time you close out a season. I'll tell you what show from that season I'll put in my belly. See you next time for the third round. <laughs> donkey! All right, well, there you go. Thank you so much, Shrek. It is now time to rank rags against all of the other musicals we have talked about here on the podcast. As always, if you want to take a look at the complete ranking, go to twitter.com slash musicalmanpod. Go to our like section. The first tweet you see there is going to take you to a Google sheet. If you click on the second tab, you will find this complete ranking. I'm going to put rags at number 33 on our list between Les Miserables at number number 32, and don't bother me, I can't cope at number 34, okay? Show-related ephemera, I am sure Judy Kuhn is a lovely person, but this interview we are about to hear in which she talks about being cast as the singing voice of Pocahontas in Disney's Pocahontas, this interview is, uh, how to describe it, tone deaf? Yeah, to say the very least, tone deaf, that sounds about right. Let's get that audio now. They had told me at some point that, you know, the chances were that I was not going to be able to do the movie because they were really going to have to cast Native American actors and singers. And so I think, okay. And um, I guess they couldn't find somebody who they liked. <laughs> and so I was very lucky and they ultimately asked me to record the songs for the movie. I guess they couldn't find any Native American women who could sing as well as me. Talk about a stroke of luck, am I right? Uh, yeah, that's one way of putting it. Judy also provided the singing voice for Princess Ting Ting in Mulan 2. So I guess Disney couldn't find any Asian women who could sing as well as her. Another unbelievable stroke of luck. Here are a few comments from this YouTube upload of Judy Kuhn talking about her work in Pocahontas. Here's a comment. Quote, Wow, she looks really good. It's so nice when women allow themselves to age naturally. Quote, Felt the need to say that, did ya? Here's another comment. Oh boy. Quote, One of my favorite singers. Her vocal style makes me think that she's a completely feminine Johnny Mathis. Are you out of your fucking... These people are out of their fucking minds. Quote, I know her daughter. I met her 50 times already. Quote. And then that very same user goes on to say in a separate comment, quote, 
she is my cousin, quote. And then a second YouTube user says in reply to that comment, quote, but you said you know her daughter. Make up your mind, OMFG, quote. And then a third YouTube user responds to that comment saying, quote, if she is her cousin, she would know her daughter, quote. Oh, a real pinter play we have on our hands. <laughs> now, normally at this point in the show, we would determine what musical we are going to discuss next by taking a ride on the musical carousel. But Anton is donating $10 a month, which means that he has earned the right to decide what show we talk about next week. We are going to be talking about a nominee from the 1989 Broadway season. This Broadway musical ran for 60 performances an even 60, and that show is, do you know what it is, huh? It's Starmites! The Mighty Starmites! Yes, we're going to be talking about Starmites next week. Thank you again, Anton, for donating via Patreon. We do so appreciate it. Speaking of Patreon, go to patreon.com slash musicalmanpod to find out how you can support the show financially. As a reminder, 100% of every monthly payout is donated to the Black Lives Matter organization. You can donate $1, $3, $5, or $10 a month. If you donate $1 a month, you get Monday early access to all of of these main feed episodes. You get a verbal shout out each and every week. Let's do that now. Thank you so much. Anton, Ross, HJG, Jared, Eli, David, Dave, Christopher, Neil, Brian, Robin, Liz, Carrie, Maddie, Jonathan, Marcus, Rob, Shauna, Shiante, Roberto, Jordan, Ashley, Chris, JC, Jenna, Aaron, Lily, Haley, Brandon, Brad, Matt, Zach, and Marisol. Thank you. You also get bonus episodes regarding the 73rd Annual Tony Awards, the trailer for the film Cats, ABC's The Little Mermaid Live, a review of the film Cats, a review of the stage production Emma, Take Me to the World, a Sondheim 90th birthday celebration, Hamilton via Disney+, Plus, Documentary Now, original cast album, co-op, and now available, our most recent bonus episode, which covers John Mulaney and the Sack Lunch Bunch. Coming November 25th, episodes regarding Jingle Jangle, A Christmas Journey, and Dolly Parton's Christmas on the Square. So many bonus episodes. But we're not done yet. If you donate one a month, you also get Season 1, 12 episodes of Radio Boy, and all of the episodes we have recorded for M3, The Movie Musical Man, which is returning December 23rd. Now, let's say you move up one tier to the $3 a month tier. If you donate $3 a month, you get everything I've already described, plus a musical shout-out in the style of a character, actor, or composer of your choosing. We heard from George Abbott this week. Who do you want to hear from? You also get Season 1, 10 episodes of Wildcats Everywhere, the high school musical podcast. Podcast, and a special one-off episode about Season 1 of Julie and the Phantoms. If you donate $5 a month, you get everything I've already described. Plus, you get to stop the musical carousel and determine what show I discuss here on the podcast. Anton got to do that. He chose Starmites, as we now know. You also get Seasons 1 and 2 of All I Ask of You, an advice show hosted by the Phantom of the Opera. Season 2 episodes are coming out each and every week right now. You also get access to our Broadway and Chicago reviews and shout about it, Volumes 1 and 2. Those are collections of 5, 6, 7, 8 ads and musical shoutouts from the first 50 episodes of the podcast. Finally, if you donate $10 a month, you get everything I've already described, plus Season 1, 12 episodes of The Snow Club, a special series dedicated to Broadway musicals that were not nominated for the Tony Award for Best Musical. If you're listening to the show via Apple Podcasts, please take a moment to write a 5-star review. Once we get to 65-star reviews, we will record and publish a special episode all about Disney's Zombies franchise. Yes, Zombies 1 and Zombies 2. We currently have 34 five-star reviews. We have a long way to go. Please take a moment to write a five-star review. You can stream the show via Spotify, Stitcher, or Podbean, musicalmanpod.podbean.com. You can follow us on Twitter at musicalmanpod and email me at musicalmanpod at gmail.com. Thanks as always to Patty and Benny in the booth, Alex Green for our beautiful logo, and Zach Little for our fabulous music. Oh, you know what that sound means? Yes, just when the fun is starting comes the time for parting. Oh well. We'll catch up some other time, specifically on the next episode of The Musical Man. So long, farewell, off and good night. <laughs>